You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come into your presence, Lord, I'm reminded that we are coming through Jesus Christ alone. If we were seeking to come alone, we would be struck down, cast off, and yet you have invited us to draw near to you through Jesus Christ. And so I pray that as we hear the word of Christ proclaimed, that you would give us faith to be trusting in this Christ and that you would speak to us from the spirit of our Christ and that you would work to build our trust even more in him and that you would make us like him. And Father, we pray that you would make us useful vessels for this gospel to go forth in our families in this community, and among the nations. Father, I pray that your spirit would help me. I pray that you would help me to be clear. And I pray, Father, that, that, that what we will discuss today would, would come with clarity into the minds of your people. That you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus clearly. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is probably hard for you to see this. Um, you can try to squint your eyes at your TV or your little phone, but you can also go to National Geographic Travel's Instagram and see this picture. It's, a, it's an ocean. It looks like, looks like little pixels, but it's an ocean of people in prayer. Here's the caption by Amanda Mustard. Tens of thousands of Egyptians pray together at sunset in Cairo, Egypt in the spring of 2012. Of all the memorable moments I've had the honor of experiencing around the globe as a photographer, this is one of the most humbling. It took my breath away. As I photographed from the edge of rooftop overlooking Tahrir Square, the call to prayer echoed as waves of uniform movement rippled throughout the crowd. Hashtag prayer. Hashtag Egypt. Hashtag Islam. This is a perfect example of a people who are zealous and dedicated and absolutely spiritually dead. And I want no part of that kind of religion. Let me give a few little disclaimers before we start this morning. First of all, you can know that I'm going to ask you to turn to several places. Um, most of those places at the very beginning, I'm going to have you turn there and I'm going to have you put bookmarks in. So you can be gathering up um, three bookmarks for that. I also want you to know that this sermon is fairly technical. And um, it could be heavy, but it is extremely important that we understand what we are going to seek to learn. 
Thirdly, this sermon really is two sermons. And the main point that I want to get to, I'm going to have to wait until next week. So this week we have two points, but really these two points are, are merely groundwork for what I really want you to see next week. So let's, um, let's start by putting a bookmark in Hebrews chapter 7. Very end of your Bible, if you go all the way to the end and come back to the left, you see the big book of Hebrews, Hebrews 7. Then I want you to put a bookmark in the very middle of your Bible at Psalm chapter 110. And then, if you would open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. Let's be reminded of where we've been so far. Abram has just returned from a bloody confrontation with Chedorlaomer and three other very powerful kings. And let's just say that it didn't go very well for Chedorlaomer. The book of Hebrews described their encounter as a slaughter. His army was run out of Israel. And Abram is returning back to his homeland, to his home, with all the loot that he has gathered from Chedorlaomer that had been stolen from his neighbors, including his nephew Lot. Upon his return, he is met by a mysterious person named Melchizedek. And as we looked at this passage two weeks ago, I promised that we would come back to Melchizedek and seek to learn about him. And so here we are. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. Then, after his return, speaking of Abram, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. This morning, in, in leading up to what I really want to cover next week, I want to ask... This question of the text. Why would God reveal to us this story about Melchizedek? And I want to point out uh, two things a day. Lord willing, one thing next week. And the first is this. Sorry for such a long point. God revealed Melchizedek to remind us that there are spiritual realities that we cannot see and don't understand and that don't fit neatly into our modern scientific categories. I know that's a, a wordy point, but it's a critical point. This text reminds us that we want nothing to do with a Jesusless, spiritless, 
Islam, and we want nothing to do with a Jesusless, spiritless version of Christianity like the one that people like Thomas Jefferson have tried to invent. You remember Thomas Jefferson, third U.S. president? He highly valued the moral teachings of Jesus, but he thought it was absolute nonsense for, for us to believe anything of the supernatural, anything like, like miracles or any notion that Jesus was a divine being who had become a human being. Thomas Jefferson literally got a copy of the Gospels and a pair of scissors and he literally cut out all the verses that had reference to the supernatural. And here's what he said. I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his, speaking of Jesus, and which is easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. Jesus' moral teachings, Thomas Jefferson says, those are like diamonds. All this supernatural stuff, that's like dung. Don't do that. This morning, we are seeking to know a supernatural, spiritual being who created us and all things. Here we have a supernatural book about supernatural events that have happened and are happening in real human history. And if this, if this makes you nervous, I want you to think about just where we've been so far in Genesis and how the Bible just, just lays out actual human history. The very first verse in the Bible introduces us to a supernatural spiritual being who speaks and time and space and everything material comes into existence. We are introduced to a man who is supernaturally created from dust. He's not evolved over billions of years from primordial soup, but created as a supernatural act of God. His wife was then created, not from some pre-human kind of being, but from a rib in her husband's side. We meet a devil, a fallen angel, who takes on the form of a serpent and talks to the woman and deceives her, enticing her into sin. We see an angel is stationed holding a flaming sword to guard a tree that if someone would eat of its fruit, they would be able to live forever. The Bible tells us about people like Enoch and Elijah who were taken to heaven without dying. In Genesis chapter 6, we are, we are introduced to fallen angels who come to earth, who sleep with human women, and then have children. In Genesis 14, here we have about an 80-year-old man and a small army who takes on four powerful kings and wins. And the Bible is very clear that this wasn't good military strategy. This is the supernatural work of God using very ordinary means to accomplish His work. And then we meet... Melchizedek. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. Now that's kind of strange to you. It's strange to everybody. Where in the world did Melchizedek come from? How in the world did he know God? He didn't come from Abram. He didn't know anything about the, the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was not even given yet. Who is this guy? He appears only here in Genesis 14, and then in Psalm 110, and then in Hebrews chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Let's see what the Holy Spirit says about him. 
Look over. So leave your bookmark there in Genesis uh, chapter 14. And then turn then in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 7. Since ancient times, there has been lots of mystery, lots of curiosity, and lots of speculation about who this Melchizedek was. Some highly respected ancient Jews believe that he was the angel Michael, and they trace lots of similarities between the two. But I want to stick with what we know from the scripture, and so we come to Hebrews chapter 7, which is a Holy Spirit-inspired text Teaching on Melchizedek. So look at Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met, Abram, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, Without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And we'll dig a little deeper in a moment. But just notice at this point that Melchizedek is a mysterious person. It sure seems to me from verse 3 that we have at least the possibility left open that Melchizedek was never born. We read along in verse 8, and then it certainly lines up with verse 3. It leaves open the possibility that, that he never died. This is mysterious to me, to say the very least. Here's the first point. That when we're dealing with God, we're dealing with a supernatural spiritual being who does supernatural spiritual things. And let's be humble enough to see and to admit that there are spiritual realities that we don't understand. I'll just give you a few that came up this week in my study. The first was in Daniel chapter 12. Listen to this. You've got to turn there. Just listen. Now at that time, Michael, Archangel Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal them up in the book until the end of time. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never thought of the archangel Michael standing guard over the people of God. But that's what the text says. Listen to this from Matthew 18. This is from Jesus. See that that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I don't, I don't tend to think of people as having angels, but that's what Jesus says. In Acts chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus' disciples mention Peter's angel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's given specific instructions of how to conduct ourselves in worship. And he says, I want you to do this because of the angels. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 2, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels 
without knowing it. Here's another. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see that? We need to notice, feel this tendency to do this, but you don't want to reduce your walk to God down to your commitment, your dedication, or even to sound doctrine about Jesus. This is spiritual work, and we are called to a spiritual walk. In Paul's defense of justification by grace through faith, he says in Galatians chapter 5, So then, does he who provide you with a spirit and the works miracles among you, does he do that by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? I believe we need to hear this. I know I need to hear this because it is possible to have lots of zeal, lots of knowledge, lots of commitment, lots of passion, and have nothing of the supernatural working of the Spirit of God. And I want God to do more in this body than we can accomplish by diligent work and an energy drink. It is very tempting in America in 2019 in modern, conservative, Bible-believing, reform-minded churches for us to reduce Christianity to what we can accomplish without the supernatural working of the Spirit of Christ. I don't want to be a church that accomplishes what we could accomplish even if God never showed up. Think about how many, if not most, modern American people, think about how they choose a church. Those people are really nice. They're really friendly. I was amazed. They knew my name by the second time I visited there. I loved their style of music and the volume was just right. They had plenty of, pro- plenty of programs for kids. The pastor was a good speaker. His doctrine was sound, focused on Christ, clear and very applicable to my life. And that church is reaching people. Great. Here's a question. Do they know God? Is the Spirit of God at work in them? Is the Spirit of God at work among them? So, I think about that. Here's what I would rather people say about First Baptist Newton. We visited that church. I can't explain it. But God met with us there. They aren't just nice. They aren't just committed to each other. They, they love each other in ways that people are unable to do unless they have their hope fixed completely on the resurrection in the next life. Those people worship God in spirit and in truth. And, and when the pastor spoke, it was as if the Bible was alive. That it was living and active. And it was piercing me all the way down to my conscience. Where, where deeply in me, like a two-edged sword, I was pierced to the heart. I felt like my whole life was laid open and laid bare to the eyes of the one with whom we have to do. And, and the longer I'm there... The more I know these people, the more I see transformation. They're not just adding numbers to them, but people are being transformed. People are being born again. And some of the least likely people that you would ever imagine. Those people know 
God. This isn't natural. I, I, get to, I get to know them as they worship together as a church. I get to know them as they live their lives out on their jobs and in their families. And it's clear to me that those people are led by the Spirit of God. And their lives display His fruit. I can't manufacture that. You can't manufacture that. But, but I'm hoping that you will join me in praying. And if the, if the Holy Spirit of God is working in us to desire more of Jesus, more of Him, to know Him, and the power of His resurrection, if that is the desire of our hearts, here's what we know from the book of Philippians, that that, that willing and that working is, is the work of God. He's the one working in us, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. That's the first thing. that This text reminds me, I don't, I don't understand everything. There, there's things that, that we can't put our fingers on. There are invisible realities that we can't control. I don't know where Melchizedek came from. Secondly, the story of Melchizedek reminds us that we need to read the Bible with Jesus as our focus. We need to read the Bible with Jesus as our focus. Everything starts with Jesus. In fact, I just want you to turn here. Turn back. If you're in, in Hebrews, flip back to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 16. For by Him, clearly speaking of Jesus, for by Him all things were created. And everything that's going on on planet Earth and the rest of the cosmos is happening for Jesus. Look look at the very end of of verse 16. All things have been created through Him and for Him. And when you notice what's happening in the very middle of the verse, this is, this is a little bit of a side, but I want you to see that this, the middle of this verse lets you know that I'm not off my rocker when I said in point one that there are supernatural things happening that we can't see. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. The question is, what in the world are these thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities? Look, look to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross when... He had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. What rulers and authorities did Jesus defeat on the cross? And the answer is spiritual rulers and spiritual authorities. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here's what I'm saying. 
And we're dealing with more than just good morals and life lessons here. We are the people of God who have been called into the life of God to join the Son of God in the work of God, which means we desperately need the Spirit of God. This book is not first and foremost about you and how you should live and how to get the most of your short stay on planet Earth. This book is about Jesus. The goal of this book is to show you Jesus so that you will trust Jesus. That you will know Jesus. That you will love Jesus. That you will join Jesus in His work to magnify Jesus. I'm I'm not making this stuff up. This is not some newfangled way that some crazy preacher learned at seminary. This, This is very old. This is Jesus talking to the Jews in John 5. You search the Scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus continues that thought in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. I had a great discussion this week with Griff and Caitlin about how when we read the Old Testament that we need to work hard to understand what it meant for those who originally read it. And I say, yes, 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 that's exactly right. But what I want you to see today is that we must never give in to the tendency to reduce the Bible to this, let me see how this person lived or let me see how this person in the Bible trusted God or let me see how God worked with this person and let me learn life lessons from them. This Bible is about Jesus. The goal of the Bible, the whole Bible, is for you to know Jesus, to trust Jesus, to love Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to join Jesus in His work, to glorify Jesus. Let's, let's think about this and when we see what we see in Genesis chapter 14. So now back to Genesis 14. Very easy for us to read Genesis 14 and to walk away with moral lessons from Abram. Abram was courageous. Oh God, make me courageous. Abram was loyal to Lot. Oh God, make me that loyal to your people. Abram trusted God to do the impossible. Oh God, would you give me more faith so I could be like Abram and trust you to do hard things. Abram wanted God to get all the glory for making him rich. Oh God, empower me to live for your glory. Or even, God, you are faithful in Genesis 14 to preserve your chosen people against all odds. Oh God, help me trust you to keep your promises. I want you to hear me. That's all great. That's not enough. You get all of that, and you miss the point of the passage. The Holy Spirit says in Hebrews chapter 7 that Genesis 14 was meant to reveal something else to us. A little bit of background before we read it. You need to, you need to know this. We'll spend more time on this next week. But here's Abram. Abram is the father of the Jewish nation. Abram ends up having a son whose name is Isaac, who has a son whose name is Jacob, 
who God changed his name to Israel. And Israel, Jacob, had 12 sons who who make up the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes, Judah, was a tribe from which Israel's kings came. Another one of those tribes, the tribe of Levi, was a tribe from whom the priests came. And the Bible is very clear that kings had to come from Judah and priests had to come from Levi. So now back to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, who remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, I I realize that's complicated. I realize that sounds a lot like those terms and conditions that you are tempted to just click that you've read, that you haven't read, and that you wouldn't understand if you did read them. But I want you to see, this is, this is fantastic. I want to show you what he's saying. In Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, it says that Melchizedek brought him bread and wine, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave them a tenth of all. I want you to notice that two things have happened. Melchizedek blessed Abram. Secondly, Abram paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews is saying, notice who is blessing whom. And notice who is paying tithe to whom. In verse 19, Melchizedek blessed Abram. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 7 says, Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now this makes perfect sense. It is, it is perfectly rational for a father or somebody else, a, an older person in the church, to go up to a child and rub their head and say, and, and say something really, really kind. Good job, buddy. But it would be weird, and it would even be wrong, for a child to go up to his daddy and rub his head and say, Good job, buddy. I want you to notice that, that the lesser is always blessed by the greater. But I want you to see he goes even deeper. In, in Genesis 14 verse 20 we read that Abram paid Melchizedek a tithe. And the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that this is remarkable. You have to understand that the Jews, for the Jews, Abram is the patriarch. 
He is the father of the Jewish nation. Abram is like George Washington and Captain America and Billy Graham and Chuck Norris all rolled into one. He, there's nobody in the Jewish mind greater than Abram. And, and they had good reason to believe this. Because think about Genesis chapter 12. It says that the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. So you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 4, now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. You see what he's saying? He's saying that if Abraham was great, Melchizedek must have been even greater. Abraham has just returned from an amazing, miraculous victory over four very powerful kings. Think about, think about what it was like to march home with Abram. Think about what his, his army must have been thinking. What were all of Abram's neighbors thinking? What was his own family thinking? I think they were thinking some version of, I believe Abram is the man. But then, what must they have been thinking? When they see this Melchizedek come, and Abram, and I'm, I'm imagining this, but Abram getting on his knees with his head bowed and had Melchizedek put his hand on Abram's head and bless him. And then for Abram to pay tithe of all the spoils to this Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Do, do, do you see the point? The point is that Melchizedek is greater than Abram. This is good news. This is incredibly good news for us. And for that, I, I, I want to just refer you to Psalm Chapter 110. Turn there with me if you will. This is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. Look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I want you to notice this is a psalm of David. And, and who is the Lord? You see it there in your text in all capital letters. The Lord, the, the Lord is Yahweh, God, Jehovah. The Lord said to my Lord. Who's David's Lord? The answer is Jesus, as the Gospels make clear. We'll come back to that in a second. But for now, I want to be crystal clear that Psalm 110 is an account of what God, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, what the Lord has said to Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You, Jesus, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
By God's grace, we will explore the implications of this next week. But here's what I hope is abundantly clear. If Abram is here, Jesus is here. If if Levi is here, then Jesus is here. That sounds simple to us, but I want you to see that this is what got Jesus killed. Do I need to stop? This is very important. Where did it go off? Do you know where it stopped, Mark? Okay. Yeah. We're going to deal with technology. The Spirit of God is greater than technology. So, I'm not exactly sure where we, where we got cut off. But we're in Psalm chapter 100, verse 10. We see it's a Psalm of David. We see that the Lord is talking to Jesus. And He's saying to Jesus in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And what I hope is abundantly clear. We will see the details of this next week by God's grace. But what I want you to see abundantly clear is that if Abram is here then Jesus is here. If Levi is here, then Jesus is here. If, 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 if David is here, then Jesus is here. This sounds very simple, but this is what got Jesus killed. Listen to this from John 8. This is Jesus talking, speaking to Jews. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Certainly you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And in verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abram? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. Let me tell you what's happening in the book of Hebrews. It is is written to a book, I mean, to a, a group of Jews, hence the name Hebrews. And these Jews had come to faith in Jesus Christ, they had trusted in him as their Savior. But they were receiving so much persecution from the Jews that they were being tempted to go back to Judaism. Go back to obedience to the Old Testament law. Go back to making sacrifices in the temple and all the rest. And the writer of Hebrews is pleading with them not to go back. Not to go back to thinking that they can get to God by being descended from Abraham or by obeying the Old Testament law giving to them through Levitical priests. Jesus is greater than Abram. Jesus is greater than Levi. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, it says Jesus says that he's greater than the temple. In Matthew 12, verse 8, Jesus says he's greater than the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, verse 41, Jesus says he's greater than Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus said he's greater than Solomon. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says he's greater than Moses. In Psalm chapter 
chapter 110, verse 1, it says that Jesus is greater than David. And if there's any question, Romans chapter 9 says that Jesus is over all, which means that Jesus is greater than Abram, greater than Noah, greater than David, greater than Moses, Elijah, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and every throne, dominion, ruler, or authority in heaven and on earth, because all things have been created through him and for him. He is a higher prophet than Moses. He is a higher order of king than David. And he and the writer of Hebrews wants us to see crystal clear that he is of a higher order of priest than Levi. And on top of that, both in Psalm 110, you can see the text there in front of you, or in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 21, he wants you to know that he holds that office of priest forever. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7. The former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood perpetually. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you see why Jesus says, listen, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me. Followed up with some of the saddest words ever uttered. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Now, I'm going to leave it right here. There is, is much to say next week about this what, this, what this means about our relationship, not just to Abraham and to Levi, but to the whole Old Testament law. And, and my goal is then to, to, to clearly, to explore with you practically what it means in real life to come to know God through Jesus and not through the law or your effort. Or your sincerity. Or your commitment. For now. Here's the gospel. He is able. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Jesus is able. To save forever. Those who draw near to God. Through him. He is able. To save forever. Those who draw near to God. Through him. Now. This is hurting me because I'm having to, to save the main point to next week. But I want to encourage you not to wait till next week. He is able today to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. So come to Him so that you might have life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, through very weak words, through complicated words, through words that are mysterious to us, and certainly through words that have been left unfinished, Father, I pray that you would work and that your spirit would work this week to prepare us that, that, we, might, that we might see from, from Melchizedek 
from Hebrews chapter 7, what it is like to draw near to God through Jesus and not through our effort. Not through our commitment. Not through our zeal. Not through the very best that we have to muster. But to draw near to God through Jesus. I pray, Father, you would prepare us. Be at work even now, preparing us to see Jesus and to cling to Him and to trust in Him and to enter His rest like we have never done before. And we pray even now that you would meet with us this week as we prepare and you would meet with us next week. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.